Solem Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is a Solem podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. David Horner on the podcast. Dr. David Horner is a fly fisherman and guitar picker who teaches philosophy and theology at Biola University. He grew up in the mountains of Colorado, wandering the hills with his pet donkey, uh, Jack A. Horner. I practiced this so many times and I can't get through that without a little straight face. <laughs> After working as a laborer in an iron foundry and as an underground missionary in communist Eastern Europe, he decided to try the bigger challenge of teaching college students. He has been married to Debbie for 40 years and they have two grown daughters and three grandchildren. He is the author of Mind Your Faith, A Student's Guide to Thinking and Living Well, published under IVP, and numerous articles and book chapters in ethics, apologetics, and ancient and medieval philosophy. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his Biola University directory profile if you want to find out more. So Dave, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you. All right. Well, um, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, namely, how did you become a Christian philosopher? Well, I um, first really realized I wanted to do this um, as I was studying Christian philosophy. So there's a there's a lead up to this. It probably begins best um, when I went to college, secular university. I was a strong Christian. I'd become, I'd given my life to Christ in high school during the Jesus movement. I was outspoken about it. I, I spoke at my high school graduation and talked about Jesus. Uh, but when I got to college, I was um, really just kind of knocked sideways by uh, intellectual objections. And really there was no one around that could help me. And so I, um, I, you know, entered a period of, I would call it mild agnosticism. I think I deeply down knew that Christian theism was true, but I didn't know how it was true. I didn't know how to answer these objections. I didn't know where to go. And uh, thankfully that year, my freshman year, um, an organization called Probe Ministries, which still exists, but they don't do things exactly the way they were doing them then. It, it, at that time, it was a one-of-a-kind uh, ministry, kind of similar to Veritas Forum today. Mm-hmm. They would bring in Christian academics to secular universities, speaking classrooms, speaking public meetings, and then at the end of the week, they had an apologetics conference. So several things happened that week. One was watching Christian academics in a secular classroom be able to articulate and defend Christian truth claims. I knew that's what I wanted to do somehow. And then at the conference at the end, I discovered all kinds of tools and books that would help me uh, kind of sort things out. And I also... I think it was significant that I met uh, Christian intellectuals who were great people. (laughs) They had good senses of humor and they loved people as well as ideas. I thought, yeah, this is the kind of person I want to be. And so really it was there, I think, that I was primarily introduced to Francis Schaeffer, although I knew something about him before. So I read Schaeffer. I read apologetics books as so far as they existed at that time. Um, I learned the concept of a worldview, which really came to people through Schaefer primarily. And so all of those things really changed me. I I got my faith back. I started doing apologetics. And so when I graduated, I, I, I knew I wanted to, you know, to go into the world of ideas somehow, but I didn't know. I didn't have a clue where. 
And so I thought, in the meantime, I really need to learn how to minister to people. So I went into campus ministry work. And it was there that I met Greg Gansel. And we started strategizing. You know, I, I remember one night sitting in a stairwell with him, talking about how do we penetrate the world of ideas of the university, uh, not just pick up the pieces of people, you know, at, on the outside, but actually get inside. And we, we really didn't know what we were doing, but we dreamed about it and we strategized. And then from then on, in, including to this day, uh, we would talk about it. And now he's, he's a, a colleague, so we can do it. I can just walk down the hall to do it. But at that time, it was letters. Uh, I, I would sometimes uh, make a cassette tape of my thoughts and send it to him in the mail and so on. Um, but so that was significant. Um, but then eventually I, I started working at Stanford University and there I was the, the level of discussion was very high. And the, the questions were hard and I really had to, to work hard uh, at it. And so I, that really renewed my desire to be on the inside somehow with these ideas, but I realized I needed uh, greater training. And it was there that, that Gansel had discovered philosophy. And so he started sending things my way and I realized, oh, that's the, that's the, um, I think that's the field where I can do this. And my, my philosophy courses in college had been kind of weird and they didn't really resonate with me, but this I can get, get a handle on. And uh, so I still didn't know quite what I would, would do. And I thought I didn't know of any other Christian philosophers except an old friend from uh, when I was in junior high and he was, he was just out of college was JP Moreland and he was now in grad school for philosophy. So he had also discovered this. And so both Gansel and I had some interactions with him. Uh, Gansel and I were, were uh, writing each other and I wanted to get more theological training as well as philosophical training. So there were, at that time, there were only two, um, theological seminaries, evangelical seminaries in the country that where you could major in philosophy. And I picked the one that was in Denver because that was home. And, um, and uh, so, so somewhere in there, I realized, okay, this is a thing I want to go into. I think this is what I was made for. I think this is strategic but I don't think there's anybody else doing it. And so this is going to be like going to a hidden people's group in the, you know, in the Muslim country. And I'm probably going to be killed. <laughs> uh, all I know is that this is where important ideas are discussed. And this is where all the students I've worked with, if they lost their faith, this is where they lost it in the philosophy class. Mm -hmm. So I want to go into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was great. Um, and it, uh, it, it's, it's uncanny just how uh, Dr. Gansel and you and Bill Craig and, um, uh, and m most of my Talbot professors uh, <laughs> were drawn into, uh, into their field uh, through apologetics. Yes. Um, and it seemed to be uh, a pretty um, serendipitous thing. It was just, yeah. yeah. Um, so Dr. Gansel on the prior podcast, he said that, um, he wasn't really, uh, too aware of the Christian philosophical Renaissance as he was getting his feet wet. Um, but then when he showed up at the society of Christian philosophers, mm -hmm. um, he showed up there and it was so, um, there were so many more people there that he had, had, uh, had thought there would be, yeah. um, he started to realize that he was part of something uh, a lot bigger. Um, so did you, uh, did you kind of get that that was uh, happening around you at that time? Well, it's similar to, to Greg, um, you know, and it was probably about the same time. Um, 
again, I didn't know. I, I just didn't know what was out there. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I read C.S. Lewis, and uh, he was engaging with in philosophical issues in a way that I was really drawn to and resonated with, and is still true today. Francis Schaeffer was a phenomenon. I think it's worth just pointing out his role in all of this. Um, I know he influenced Greg Gansel. Um, I'm not sure how much he influenced some of the other guys, but I know many have been heavily influenced by him because he just showed up on the, on the scene in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, you know, this, this kind of strange looking guy with knickers who lived in Switzerland. Uh, and he really wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't trained in philosophy. He was more of a theologian, but he, he was actually sent to, to um, Switzerland to be a child evangelist of all things. I just can't imagine that he was any good at that. But uh, while he was there, he, he kind of opened his home and eventually they acquired several chalets in this tiny little town. And um, it was sort of an open door for people to come who were searching. They had to do a little bit of work, but then most of their time they could spend studying. And then it was, every question is, is, a, is a legitimate question to, to talk about over supper and into the night. And some of the things that he came up with um, in engaging with art in particular, art and culture, um, you know, finally made it into books and they started becoming distributed. And that was, that was just huge to us, to some of us at least. And that's where I kind of, well, that's where I really discovered what a worldview is and, and so on. And I can tell you a story about an interaction with a, a, a Schaeferite um, in, in high school in a minute, but uh, I didn't really kind of catch on to it until I started reading Schaefer himself and just seeing connections, you know? So, um, but he would, he, my point here is that he would engage with philosophers, especially mm -hmm. existentialists. So the, the guys that were really influential in his time, and I was just captivated by that in particular. Like, wow, yeah, okay. That's, that's, those are the things I'm interested in. And that's what I want to deal with. And I can see how it influences the world. It, 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 it shapes the way music is written and so on. Uh, but, but I'll just mention when I was in high school, because this was very formative for me. Again, this is before my, my almost conversion experience or near conversion experience in college. But I, again, I was very active. Um, well, I guess I shouldn't say conversion, but my, my recovery of my faith in college, um, when I was really walking with the Lord in high school, um, this is in the early 70s. And um, at that time, there was no Christian you know, music, uh, contemporary Christian music, any of that kind of stuff. And so or very little of it. And so um, there, there was a big push from some people that you shouldn't have any engagement with culture at all. You should not listen to rock music, you know? And so my dad took me to hear one of these guys and he just made the case, this is satanic and all this kind of stuff. And so I thought, well, I wanna follow Jesus. And if that's what it takes, I'll go burn my records, as he was suggesting. But something just does not sound right about it. And so I, I went to church, and I put my little card, request card, in the offering. And I said, I'd like to talk to somebody about, about something. I don't know why I didn't go to my youth pastor, but I, I did the generic thing there in the church. And so it, it ended up in the hands of my youth pastor. So he said, well, let's go get some dinner and talk. So we went and it turns out that my youth pastor had studied at Labrie with Francis Schaefer for six months. Hmm. Now, what are the chances of that? Or, and especially Podunk, uh, Colorado, you know, 
<laughs> just, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, what he did was help me think through this and think through the ideas that are shaping the lyrics of, of artists and so on and becoming a kind of culture critic, culture analyst, rather than just, you know, either or. And he said, you know, probably there are some things you, you shouldn't listen to. But, um, you know, in, of course, it was Jesus movement time. If you want to you wanna reach people, uh, you know, that you know and so on, you need to be able to speak the language that they're, they're speaking and understand their thoughts and all that kind of stuff. So I think that actually was quite formative as well. And just in the providence of God, I had, a, I had probably the only youth pastor in America uh, who fit that description. So I wanted to throw in Schaefer, even though he wasn't a philosopher. And, you know, you can, you, one can, uh, you know, disagree with all kinds of stuff. And I do, uh, that he said. Uh, he, was, he, he thought Thomas Aquinas was basically you know, the beginning of the end. And uh, Aquinas is somebody that I spent a lot of time studying. I think he was wrong about that. I think he was wrong about a number of things, but he, he, he brought into the world of, of young um, people following Jesus, a different way of thinking about stuff that for m- some of us, many of us, I think, actually helped us, uh, moved us toward toward philosophy. In fact, Tom Morris, Thomas V. Morris, who um, was at least a very, uh, very uh, influential Christian philosopher, uh, he has a similar story, I think, uh, that it was Schaefer that, that really influenced him to begin with. So all that to, to give you a very long answer to your question about what was my awareness. Well, I was aware of Lewis, and Schaefer, but they were not contemporary philosophers. They weren't even philosophers, although Lewis did have a degree in philosophy and did teach philosophy at Oxford uh, initially. But um, no, I didn't know. I didn't know anything. So as I started reading more, I discovered that Basil Mitchell, who I would later come to know and become a friend with, he he was a friend of C.S. Lewis uh, who took over the Socratic uh, club from Lewis when Lewis left Oxford for Cambridge. And he was a philosopher. So in the 50s and 60s, he is like the only guy who is a Christian philosopher who is, you know, making arguments and kind of defending the faith in that arena. And then Al Plantinga shows up in the 60s. And I think that was a huge turning point for a lot of people. Um, and then luminaries like Bill Alston, who was uh, Greg Gansel's supervisor. So similar to Greg, when I was at seminary studying this, uh, I, I started becoming aware of SCP conferences, Society of Christian Philosophers conferences and so on. And, and I went to one and here are all these guys. Um, Alston, Norman Kretzman from Syrac- from uh, Cornell, who had actually come back to Christ as a professional philosopher, lost his faith in college, very prominent philosopher, Robert Adams, Marilyn Adams, so real luminaries, uh, and they're actually Christian philosophers. So yeah, wow, this is not the hidden people thing. This is actually, you know, exciting. And there were kind of a lot of new people. Now, I think, you know, later in the story, Talbot has had a, an important uh, role in this renaissance. But of course, we didn't start it. But we played, you know, an important role later on. Right. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, Tal- I mean, being at Talbot firsthand, uh, there is just something about the school um, that makes um, has just served as a paradigm shift uh, for the way that people think about thinking Christians today. Um, so yeah, I, I I loved my time at Talbot, and uh, and yeah, it was it was uh, just surreal to watch that in real time. 
Um, I did want to ask, uh, th this is a two-pronged question. When did you start to feel a draw to your field ethics? Um, and was that uh, the renaissance of Christian philosophy, was that as a parent in ethics as it is uh, in philosophy of mind and philosophy of religion and uh, metaphysics and whatnot? Yeah. Well, w my recollection of those early days of where things were, even, even when I attended the SCP conference like that, um, the, the big attention, I think, as I recall, was primarily philosophy of religion. It, it wasn't even really philosophy of mind and metaphysics in there. It was just philosophy of religion. And it was all about, uh, well, in the, the, the real early stuff, it was all about, can we, can we use religious language? But then as I started to get involved in it, it was, a, it was a various kinds of theistic arguments uh, rebutting the problem of evil and all that kind of stuff. It was what Plantinga was doing. And of course, all we thought of Plantinga was doing was philosophy of religion, when in fact he was doing all kinds of other metaphysics stuff too. Um, but that was, you know, then it might just have been my narrow focus, but that's what I saw. It's all about that. And so when I started doing grad work, that's, that's where I thought I was headed. That's just where everybody had. Uh, but when I was in, in theological seminary um, and I was studying philosophy along with a lot of, a lot of theology, my, my training at that time was, was not as analytic and kind of focused on philosophy as Talbot is now in, in programs that have, have kind of uh, been influenced by Talbot. Uh, so at this time, it was more theological, more apologetic, um, and because that's what the but in but in philosophy of religion. But I I had a a teacher who was an adjunct really, uh, who was into ethics, <clears throat> and so I started learning about virtue ethics, and uh, I thought this this is it. I mean, this fits kind of my Lewis interests, my just, this is, this resonates with what I'm interested in. Um, and ironically, I was, I was the president of an apologetics ministry during that time. So I was spending my time, you know, doing arguments for the existence of God and so on, but, but my real love was ethics. And, um, but I thought, well, you know, probably a uh, philosophy of religion is the way to go. That's what's needed, but I'd like to make it, I'd, I'd like to kind of combine some ethics with it. That's kind of the way it went. But then uh, I started doing grad work, secular grad work at the University of Colorado. And once again, it was the ethics stuff that really fascinated me. And I, I discovered medieval uh, ethics stuff, as well as um, more of Aristotle. I knew some Aristotle. So when I went from there over to Oxford, um, I, I went at the suggestion of, of Bill Craig, who said, why don't you go to Oxford and study with Swinburne, Richard Swinburne? Sounds like a great idea. So I did. And of course, that's what he does, philosophy of religion. And so after, I mean, I was only there half a year, I think, or maybe... Uh, two terms. And I thought, you know, I don't really want to do that. Uh, I think it's worth doing. I think it's important, but, um, you know, I, I took, a, I took, a, it, all the classes are tutorial classes. So they're one-on-one. -on -one. So I, I studied with a, a very prominent, uh, Aquinas scholar, uh, and, oh, man, this is great. And I studied ethics with Bernard Williams, who was the, 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 the top guy in ethics at, at, at uh, Oxford at the time, the White's professor of moral philosophy. And he's an Aristotelian. And I thought, okay, this is it. So I switched gears and, and kind of went that route. So that's how I got into it. It, it was, and I think for other you know people pursuing PhDs or 
or other lines of study, I think that there's kind of a twin thing if you're going to be a Christian philosopher. Um, you want to you want to be strategic. You want to think kingdom. Okay, what what is needed? Uh, where can I best serve? But you also want to look at how you're wired and what interests you, because especially if you want to do a PhD, it's a long, hard slog. And you don't want to spend five years of your life, you know, working on something that you don't really care about at all. Yeah. And that's sort of the decision I made. And mm -hmm. I, I'm very grateful that I made it. Right. What do you think for you is the draw of ethics? Well, great question. I don't know if I've really thought about it. Um, I have a, I have a very, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but my, my way of thinking of ethics is, is classical. And what I mean by that is the way that, that ancient and medieval uh, philosophers and theologians thought of it. And the way I, frankly, I think the Bible thinks of it, at least in particular, the, the wisdom literature. Right. And that is to think of ethics not as, as kind of codes or ways to solve moral dilemmas, that sort of thing, as important as those things can be. Uh, but it's really about how to live, how to, how, how to live a life that is meaningful and significant and good. And so it's, it's you know, this, this way of thinking of it resonated with my long-term interest in Lewis, for example. Um, but I think also, I mean, I'm a musician. I, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm not uh, kind of motivated by that sort of stuff as great as, as it is. Um, I, 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 I do love people, even though I'm an introvert uh, and I want to see them flourish and so on. So ethics is, is about that. I mean, those sorts of things. It's, it, 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 it is more easily resonant with things like questions about meaning and uh, beauty uh, as well as goodness. And so I think that's, you know, that my, that's part of it is my personality, that mm -hmm. that's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in and passionate about. And so if you think of ethics, not as just the kind of rulemaking and um, that sort of thing, but you think of about it as, you know, answering the question, what kind of life is worth living? What makes for a meaningful life? What makes for a flourishing life? Then, you know, then that sort of approach to ethics is something that I was attracted to. And it took me a while to figure out that that's how you can approach ethics. Yeah. Uh, would you say that your, your draw to ethics and your approach to ethics had influenced your decision to uh, be a missionary in Eastern Europe? Probably, although, you know, I just have to kind of go retroactively back and, and see that. But, but yeah, the, some, some of those same interests were certainly there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, uh, I mean, since I, since I came to Christ in, in the Jesus movement, I've been around people who are committed to, you know, reaching out to other people with the gospel. I'm, as I say, I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a salesman. You know, I'm not a, I'm just not naturally the kind of guy that hangs out with everybody. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm, I, I do love people and, and, and I want, and I, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. And, but fortunately I've seen, I've seen it modeled, you know, and I've been around people who encourage it. And so um, that's, that's a big reason why I went into campus ministry work uh, out of college. And, and part of that was they were opening, trying to open up Eastern Europe, uh, which was communist at that time. 
And so I was always interested in taking chances. I was also, a, I loved spy uh, books and stuff, you know, growing up. And I thought, oh, yeah, Eastern <laughs> Europe, you know, it, it, that's I, I can get into that. And it was very secretive. We couldn't tell anybody where we were <laughs> and, and so on. And uh, so, I mean, I could, I could tell stories forever on that. Uh, but uh, so that, that was probably my, my best time when I was in campus ministry work was that just because it, I also like cult, you know, cultural uh, figuring out how to survive in another culture. Mm. and so on and man it was survival uh, you know right not knowing any of the language having a team i was responsible for trying to find housing trying to figure out public transportation <laughs> and all kinds of stuff and uh so that was another thing it's not really a philosophical bent but it is something that you know f- for me personally is an interest so that, that i i love that as well right um uh, do you think that your um, your ethical inclinations? Do you, do you think that the main um, impetus of going out there was the desire to uh, afford these people religious freedom? Uh, well, I don't think so. I mean, not in the sense, not in a political philosophy sense. You know, like I want to undermine. Um, communism, although I wouldn't, I, you know, I was happy to do that <laughs> if I could, but it was, it, I think the way I'd put it more is, is, is to help people find freedom within a non-free, you know, uh, environment. And, uh, and so, I mean, I, I worked with a lot of people who are Christians and they were, I mean, it was very interesting. They, you know, they're, they they were um, they were resisting. It wasn't you know armed resistance or anything like that. But I mean, they were seeking to undermine um, this godless atheistic society by bringing the kingdom of God into it. So, and in fact, while I was there, when I I, I went into Poland uh, in 1979, right after uh, the new Polish Pope, John Paul II, uh, took his first trip back in. And he had gatherings of a million people. <laughs> and the communist authorities were just, they, they, were, they didn't know what to do. They were so frustrated. And so I came in, I just happened to come in uh, right after that. And I saw what happened. In fact, I was, I was right near Gdańsk when the first um, solidarity uh, uh, demonstrations occurred that gave birth you know, to the movement of solidarity that eventually toppled communism in, in Poland and then you know, as a domino effect around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw, it was very instructive to me to see people who were living in that way, you know, living, uh, like just for example, my first lunch at this camp in the, this real obscure place that we had where we were teaching and we eventually got run out, the police, the police were coming. So we took the midnight train out, but, uh, this high school kid, I, as I was presented with my lunch, which was a piece of bread with lard on it, and I looked at it, and, I, <laughs> and this kid kind of grins, and he goes, socialism. <laughs> I yeah. thought, okay. And, uh, and, and then actually... Uh, for a while, we worked there under we we were, we were there during uh, martial law because 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 there was this new movement, the government, the communist government, put the clamps on and restricted a lot of stuff. But I, we were actually there during some of that time, and and the the leader of our movement was 
it, it looks like now they're exhuming his body uh, to, to, to see, but it looks like now he was actually murdered by the, um, by the communist authorities. And then, and then communism fell. And, but then in, in, in uh, fall of 1990, I actually went into Russia, into the Soviet Union, still the Soviet Union. And I taught at an underground seminary. And again, I see now these are Russian people and they are, um, they, they love being Russian, uh, but, you know, they have no room for, the, for communism. <laughs> and, uh, and shortly after I was there, communism toppled in, in, in the Soviet Union as well. So I'm, I feel, I, in many cases, I feel like, uh, many times I feel like Forrest Gump, you know. Uh, I don't think I did anything significant particularly with respect to any of these things, but I got to be there and see a whole bunch of cool stuff happen. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure that you, you had a lot more influence than you, than you give yourself credit for. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I was here at Talbot a few years ago. We, we had a, a thing called the center for Christian thought. It was a Templeton kind of thing. We brought in scholars from different places and for, for the year and, it was great. And uh, so one day, uh, you know, I, before school started, I was, I, I walked down to the exit of my office building. And here's a guy, very Eastern European looking guy. And I said, can I help you? And he asked for the, the office of, of one of the faculty members in a different building, but he had, he had a, you know, a, an Eastern European accent. So I, I asked him where he's from, Poland. And so we started speaking Polish, what little bit I could remember, and uh, kind of hit it off. And he, he was a, he's a theologian who grew up in Poland, but he was, he was in the States doing a PhD and then planning to go back. So I told him about my involvement with this movement, and he just said, oh, I grew up hearing about that. And, and, and so we invited him and his, his uh, family over for dinner one night. And he said, this guy that I, the, the leader of our, our movement, a guy by the name of Franciszek Blachnitsky, uh, whom I, as I indicated, it looks like he was murdered uh, by the communists. Um, it's an ongoing investigation right now, but it, it, he, he said, this guy, I can't remember his name, said, um, yeah, I mean, doctoral dissertations are being written about Blachnitsky. Uh, he said, you have no idea what an influence that movement had on Poland. Um, and I had already heard that it was the spiritual seedbed for the solidarity movement and so on. So, um, you know, you never know. And, and he was, he was in virtual tears, thanking me for being part of it. And once again, I don't, I didn't really do much of anything. I don't think I harmed it too much, but, um, but, but the movement itself and what people were doing, you know, which I don't know if there's a lesson here, except that you never know, uh, you know, in the moment you have no idea. I mean, I wasn't strategizing this except a little bit. I mean, I thought this would be a great opportunity to influence people over there, but you never know if you're a part of a, of a major movement or not, you know, God's the only one that knows that. And then historians can look back on it. Same with, with the Renaissance and Christian philosophy. Um, you know, nobody sat down and said, let's have a Renaissance and Christian philosophy and let's pick Bill Craig, J.P. Moreland, and some of these guys, and and we'll have them do this, this, and this. No, this was a movement of God. You know, people's hearts were inflamed by a vision, uh, and you know, all these things kind of came together, and and here we are. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'll I'll just say that um, I I think that the the members of the Christian philosophical renaissance um, 
are some of the bravest academics I've I've met, um, because it takes a lot of courage to have the, well, I, I don't want to say the audacity. Um, well, well, that's probably right yeah. for, in many cases anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, you you just have to have uh, a lot of guts, you know, to put forth your arguments that they did in that time, and and then to defend them against mm -hmm. the. Uh, uh, the status quo. Um, yeah. So I, I really do admire them a lot. And um, I'll say too, that I, I think it's very brave um, what you did by going to uh, the communist countries. Um, a lot of academics, well, a lot of people are drawn to academics to avoid stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, he, he went completely the opposite way. So um, well, thank you. But, you know, I, I think that is that's that is one of the things that's that I think is distinctive of ta of the Talbot philosophy program yes. is that the, the faculty are all like of, of that mind. You know, we're all about ministry, about uh, the Great Commission, we would say, or, you know, um, and, you know, that that is not that's not always true for sure. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that is one of the distinctives that, and one of the reasons I think God has really blessed it here. I'll, I'll tell another quick anecdote. Uh, it's not just us. Um, Richard Swinburne is this kind of guy. I mean, he, he, he would go, I mean, talk about guts. Uh, and I've seen him under, you know, amazing fire. Um, uh, and in, in fact, one time we talked about it and he said, well, um, if you stick your head above the parapet, they're going to shoot you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just the way it is. But uh, one really interesting experience I had with him was I, I went into his office and I said, so what are you, what are you going to be doing during the break between terms? He said, I'm going to Lithuania to present some papers. And I said, Vigavricha uh, Poruski? Do you speak Russian? Which is like the only Russian I could remember. <laughs> and he responds back in fluent Russian. What? And it turns out that when he did his national service in the in the 50s as a college student, you had to, you had to do two years of national service. Uh, he spent those two years, they, they were training him in Russian. Uh, in case it was needed. But he didn't just know Russian. He went in there and he, you know, he had a, he had a passion to, um, to get Christian truth in there to, to encourage and strengthen the, the Christians who were there and so on. So, um, you know, I mean, he definitely fits that profile. Well, as a final thought on uh, your time in uh, communist countries, uh, do you think that your time there influenced your approach to ethics? Uh, well, yeah, I think I think it it it. I mean, it 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 changed my life in many ways. Um, and so I'll I'll mention two things. One one would be, uh, and just directly in response to your your question. I think um, <clears throat> seeing seeing people living, you know, living their lives in this particular society, and what they had to go through and all that helped shape the way I think about society and and the common good. Um, and so it it's you know, it's multifaceted. It's not just, can we get them to, to know Jesus um, or get them to be honest or something like that, as important as things are. Um, you know, there are also really important matters about whether or not they can flourish. And certain political systems are inimical to that. And certain are better. So, you know, that all fits into my 
orientation to ethics, I think. It, it helped to shape the way I think about these things. But also, and I, I, I talk about this a lot in various places, but uh, I had a very powerful experience in Auschwitz, the Nazi extermination camp. I've been there a number of times. And, but my second time I was there, <clears throat> I had um, a woman I was dating with me whom I had talked into going, going over <laughs> to Poland. And uh, as, as we were standing in this room, that if you go to Auschwitz, you can, there are all these different places to visit. You can see where they stayed, these terrible living conditions, you can go to rooms, you can go to the rooms that, uh, where the ovens are, you can go to the shower rooms where Cyclone B gas was, you know, injected into, and, and they were asphyxiated. You can see rooms full of shoes, just hundreds of thousands of shoes of every size, children's, adults, and so on. A room full of crutches, uh, a room full of eyeglasses. Um, these are all from the victims. There was a room full of human hair that they would shave after they would be, be asphyxiated. They would shave them and then they would throw them into the ovens. And the hair was sent back in some cases to Germany to make sweaters and blankets for the war effort. Uh, room full of teeth where they extracted the gold to fund the war effort and so on. I mean, just all this brutal stuff. But the room that really got to me was the room full of suitcases. There's little ones and a little bit bigger ones. And each one had a name on it and a prison number and the date of birth. Uh, and so each one represented a human being created in God's image. And so it was that that was just so vivid to me. But when I was with Debbie, she's now my wife. Um, she said, look at that. And in the middle of the room, about a third of the way up or half the way up was a suitcase that said Eva Horner on it. Spelled just the way we spell Horner. And course i didn't know anything about eva i other than what i saw there i didn't know if she was related to me but just the thought that she could be you know just really powerfully influenced me and that has stuck with me uh, in fact I, I i started telling this story probably uh 25 years ago um and <clears throat> I couldn't remember if I had all the details right. And then probably 10 years ago, Debbie was looking through some old photographic slides that we had taken. And she said, look at this. And it was a picture of a suitcase. So I have it. I can verify that now. But, um, you know, I've thought a lot about Eva Horner and I've, uh, I've realized that she was a victim of an idea. Mm. Um, the, and it was an idea which I now know in German to be Lebensunwertes Leben, a life unworthy to be lived. It was an idea that captured the minds of German intellectuals, scholars, uh, psychiatrists, judges, in the 20s and 30s. So long before Auschwitz, um, tens of thousands of ethnic Germans were put to death because it was determined that their life was not worth living. Handicapped, elderly, and so on. And so I think the way to think of Auschwitz is not so much as a kind of a weird anomaly, but as a monument to an idea. And so that is, I think, maybe more than anything else, is what kind of really pushed me to say, okay, ideas 
matter. Ideas have consequences, as they say. Um, and I, I need to, I, I need to, you know, be at the level of ideas. I need to be engaging that. I need to try to smoke out wrong, false ideas, promote good, true ideas. Um, and so that, you know, that's really the kind of the engine that, that motivates my, my participation in philosophy uh, in general, and, but it, it also is what's motivating my, my interest in ethics. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was, that was beautiful. Um, yeah. And it, it does really, I think that that speaks to the practicality of, of ethics and, and what we're doing at Talbot. Um, because yeah, the ideas are either wonderful or dangerous things or wonderfully dangerous. Hmm. Um, so, nice. so definitely. That's really cool. uh,